are back in our Book of Revelation series. So if you like what you've heard today or, or you want to kind of go back and do a review or you just you, you love this, this topic, you can go online, vineyard05.com, and scroll all the way down, click on sermon videos, and scroll all the way down until you see the one that says uh, introduction, book of Revelation, and that's the beginning. This is our 10th sermon on this topic, and today we're in chapter 5. So we're not rushing through this, clearly. Um, but you can get caught up if you want that. Now, so, so just to kind of where we're at, Revelation chapters 4, 5, and 6. We're going to just jump right into it. And I'm going to talk fast and some, sometimes just to kind of speed it up a little bit. But chapters 4, 5, and 6 in the book of Revelation are a prelude to both the rapture and the tribulation period. Now, the tribulation period is also referred to as the hour of testing. And it is a seven-year span of time that God's judgment will come upon the earth. And it's, it's God's wrath comes upon the earth. Now, this judgment is reserved for those who have rejected Jesus. But it is also a call to salvation for the Jewish people, for God's chosen people. So there's, there's two reasons why this hour of testing will come upon the earth. But prior to this hour of testing, the church... Those of us who are of the body of Christ, who believe in Jesus, we will be removed from the earth. We will be called up to heaven. And this is called the rapture. Now, we've covered some passages in the last, in the, the chapter four, the last sermon we did, on, that, that I believe support a pre-tribulation rapture. There's a lot of different theories. Some people say pre-tribulation, some people say mid, and some people say post. I'm not going to get into an argument with you about that. I definitely don't think it's post, because when we get raptured up, when we get called up, we will partake in what is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then after that, we will return with Jesus. In, during, this will be his second coming. So I definitely think it's pre. I think scripture supports pre, but it could be mid. Uh, and you know what? It could be all of them. We'll just we'll have to find out. But I'm banking on a pre-tribulation rapture. And when we get into chapter 7, we're going to look at the rapture a little bit more because uh, there's a verse in there that talks about the rapture. So we'll get into this a little bit more. Um, let's see. And so chapter 4, though, the chapter prior to the one we're looking at today, began a detailed look at the very throne room of God. And then chapter 5 is a continuation of that scene. Now, Jesus is often referred to as a lamb, the lamb of God. And today, what we're going to look at is how the lamb is the only one worthy to carry out God's plans. And before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve, the very first human beings that made up mankind, the beginning of it all, they gave up something very special that they had of something of great value and what they gave up was a perfect relationship with God and they took this so see it was a perfect relationship because they were heirs to everything that God had created 
God was, was, was going to give them everything, and they, were, they, they had dominion over everything. And they took this perfect relationship, and they forfeited it for a lie from Satan, from the serpent. Adam and Eve believed the lie that if they ate, God said, you can have all the, all the food in this garden is yours to eat from. Just don't eat from that one tree. And that tree was called the tree of the knowledge of both good and evil. They weren't supposed to eat from that tree. So Satan comes along as a serpent, and he does what he does best. He gets us to question the word of God. When, when you start questioning what the scriptures say, you might want to talk to somebody that you, that you uh, respect spiritually. Because that, Satan has been using this tactic from the very beginning of time. He says to Eve, did God really say you couldn't eat from that. You know why he didn't want you to eat from that tree? Because he didn't want you to become like him. And they bought into the lie. Basically, he was saying, you could become gods too. See, when we're not living a life for Jesus, we're living a life for ourselves. And essentially, we are the gods of our lives. We're making decisions. We're calling the shots. We, we are... We are uh, uh, forging the path of our own destiny, if you will. And then when we come to Jesus, when we believe in Jesus, now we're living for him. We're living under his leadership. We submit to him. And, and, and some people think, well, that's more constricting, but it isn't. There's freedom in that. There's freedom in Jesus. And, and the whole theme for today is redemption. And so falling for the lie and eating from that tree brought sin into the world. It brought rebellion into the world. It brought death. It brought disease, sickness, lying, cheating, scan, all of that stuff was brought into the world because of the fall of mankind. It's called the fall of mankind because they ate from that tree. And all of mankind is now subject to this. We are born with a sinful nature. We're born with a rebellious nature. By nature, we are a rebellious being. And what it really did the most was it broke the trust between Adam and Eve and God. It broke the trust between mankind and God. Think about this. When you come to Jesus, don't you have to, like, trust that he knows what's best for you? Like, it's a trust issue, right? And when he moves in our lives, we begin to trust a little bit more. And then he moves a little bit more, and we begin to trust a little bit more. It's all about trust. And God wants that trust with us. And so from that point on, all of creation essentially was turned over to the father of lies, Satan. He's a liar from the beginning. He will always lie to us and deceive us. And the only person who can pay the debt of the rebellion that fell on all of mankind is Jesus. And he did so when he died on the cross for us. Romans chapter 5 says this, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Now, I read from the New Living Translation, so that's what, you're, that's what you're hearing from right now. Now, Jesus paid the ultimate price 
so that we could have freedom, spiritual freedom. He redeemed us for what he did. Now, redeem is an interesting word. Essentially, it means the same in both the Greek and the Hebrew, and it means to buy back something that was previously lost. That's what the word redeem means. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote these words to Timothy concerning who Jesus is. He says this in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Jesus gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. Everything in this book, no matter what people say about it, brings freedom in our lives, not constriction. Jesus redeemed all of mankind with his very life when he allowed himself to be nailed to the cross. And not just nailed to the cross, wrongly accused, beaten, smacked, punched, spit upon, whipped, nailed to a cross, stabbed in his side with a spear. And he did that for us. He did that to redeem us, to buy back that which was lost. Now, listen to this in 1 Peter. You know, 1 Peter, I've, I know, if, if you remember, I've said this a little bit. Oh, I just lost my thing. I hope it'll, here we go. Peter, Peter was pretty deep the, theology-wise. And, and he, his writings, uh, First and Second Peter, are pretty deep. And we often look at him as like this bumbling guy that, was, that said things that he shouldn't have said and this and that and the other. But his writings, check it out, First and Second Peter. Well, look what he says in First Peter chapter 18. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 18. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. That would be Adam and Eve. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. So there's that reference of being a lamb. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. God chose Jesus to be our Redeemer long before the world began. Keep that in mind as we continue to, as we dive into the book of Revelation. So our redemption was purchased 2,000 years ago on the cross. And for us personally, that redemption takes place the moment that we accept Jesus for what he did for us on the cross. We aren't redeemed until we accept him. And right now, those of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus, believers, Christians, we are in what, what I refer to as the present tense of our redemptive lives. Meaning, we are allowing the Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, to convict us, to bring about change. And in uh, uh, the book of Romans, uh, what chapter is it in? Uh, eight, maybe. Uh, uh, the trans by, by renewing, by the transformation, the renewing of our minds. We're constantly changing. We're constantly becoming something better. We're not conforming to the ways of the world. We're being transformed by the renewing of our minds. There it is. 
That's a change. It's an ongoing process to follow Jesus. We'll never attain the highest level of Christianity. We'll always become something better. As long as we allow the Holy Spirit to convict us of things and to refine us. And then to be sharing that good news with others and pointing others to Jesus. That is a part of our present tense redemptive plan, state of mind. Our future redemptive state is yet to come. This is our eternal destination. Because whatever we do here on this earth, I believe, determines what we'll be doing in eternity. Now, Jesus also prophesied about this in the Gospel of Luke, about this future redemptive state to his disciples when he was speaking of the tribulation period. Now, in Luke chapter, tw uh, chapter 21, Jesus is telling his disciples these things that are yet to come. And he gets very descriptive, but we're going to read just a little bit here in uh, Luke 21, verse 25. And he says this, And there will be strange signs in the sun, moon, and stars, and here on earth the nations will be in turmoil, perplexed by the roaring seas and strange tides. Interesting. I mean, that's... that's he's not just like like being in general here, he's being very specific. Like when you start seeing the oceans acting weird and things acting weird and the sun and the moon and the stars, you know, we get these, these blood moons that, that they talk about, those don't mean anything. We're, we're, not, we're not here yet. But man, we get excited about stuff that happens. Uh, here's the thing. If you, if, you, if you like the end time stuff, this is the main thing that you must always remember. Keep your eyes on Jerusalem. Keep your eyes on Israel. Don't worry about whatever else is happening around the world because when you start seeing havoc and things happen in Jerusalem and in Israel, then you might want to start diving into this stuff and, and kind of get your stuff yourself ready. Talk to your friends that don't know Jesus. <laughs> but look at this. <laughs> Perplexed by roaring seas and strange tides, people will be terrified at what they see coming upon the earth. For the powers in the heavens will be shaken then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. So when all these things begin to happen, stand and look up, for your salvation is near. Now the Son of Man is Jesus. He's referring to himself as the Son of Man. He's also quoting the Old Testament prophet Daniel right here. When you see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, you'll know. Now, this word salvation right here also means redemption. In the King James, that very verse says this. Now, when you see these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Your, what I'm calling your future redemptive state, your, your salvation, your eternal salvation, redemption draws near. Everything that Jesus did for us is coming to a head. And then, this brings us to where we're at in Revelation chapter 5. So that's our, that's our setup for Revelation. All right, now, remember, this is a continuation of chapter 4. In chapter 4, I'll just let you go back and read that, or go back and, 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 and watch the sermon from this. Basically, John sees, I'll just tell you, he's, he's, there's, there's these four angels, these living creatures that are flying around the throne room, and they've got, each of them got a different face, and they've got six wings and eyes, 
throughout all of these wings, and, and they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then there's 24 elders around the throne. 12 represent the, the 12 tribes of Israel, and 12 represent the 12 disciples. And then there is one who is sitting on the throne. Fascinating stuff, like just incredible. And, and so, so remember, uh, we started this series and I said that I take everything from the Bible literally. And, and you might think, man, these creatures, these things are just far out, these like eyes everywhere and wings and, and, and all this weird stuff. Well, well, think about this. God is the creator of everything and we're just used to seeing what we see here on this earth. We are going to see some really fascinating insects when we get to heaven. And we'll love it, too. We won't be smashing them. Just think about how, how it's going it's, to... It, to our finite minds right now, it sounds weird. And so everything in here, there is some symbolism in here, but there is a literal meaning to the symbolism. So, so here we are. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then... I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. This is the Apostle John writing this. He starts out this book by saying, I'm writing down everything that I have seen and heard. He was there. He's in the throne room of God witnessing this. Now this scroll, which is held by the one who is sitting on the throne, this is God himself. And in chapter 4, this is the description that John gives us. There is one who is sitting on the throne, uh, uh, and, and he is as brilliant as gemstones, sapphires and rubies and all of these colors. And the glow of emeralds circled his throne like a rainbow, and there were flashes of lightning and rumbles of thunder. That is the, that's the, the seat that God sits on. The best description that John could give us is that. God himself is holding this scroll in his right hand. Writing was on both sides of this scroll, and it was sealed seven times. Now, in the ancient world, in the Bible times, a scroll was rolled up, and it was tied with a string, and then the way they sealed it was they took some melted wax, put a couple dollops of wax on there on the string, and that sealed it. Now, this scroll was sealed seven times. That's how much valuable information was in this scroll. Like if you unrolled it, it would probably go... And it was, had writing on both the front and the back. Nothing in all creation was able to open the scroll. And this brought great sadness to John. So much so that he begins weeping. In this moment, all of heaven is looking and waiting for someone who is worthy to open this scroll. 
Now, what makes this scroll so important that it cannot be opened by any living creature in heaven, on the earth, or under the earth? We're going to get to that part before we end today, so in case you're wondering what that means. All of creation, everywhere. What makes this scroll so important? Well, there's, there's several different thoughts and theories and, and, and things like that out there. So I've been doing some studies. I have a book that I'm reading, and then I'm also looking at some of the commentaries. And, and here's the thing. This is the most agreed-upon thought that is in this scroll. Because we, we, we do know later on that, that the scroll does get opened. But, but for right now, the contents of this scroll contain the records of how the paradise God created for mankind was forfeited to Satan. In other words, part of this scroll may just be the land deed to God's creation. Because Jesus himself said that, that this world is Satan's kingdom. He rules and he reigns on this earth. Now, God is, is, is all-powerful, knows all things, and we know that God breaks into our world here, and, and he created everything. But he has kind of put some parameters on himself for right now. But Adam and Eve gave up everything that was given to them to a lie that Satan got them to believe. And so, so I believe that part of what is in this school is the land deed. Like, for instance, this church has four or five different land deeds. As we purchase property throughout the years, we have different land deeds. It's broken up into what's called parcels. So here's the thing. And then here's where this comes from as well. All right. So God, God with the Israelites, he chooses these people to be his people, right? And then in, in uh, Exodus, Leviticus, and, and some of Numbers, but mostly Exodus and Leviticus, he sets up his nation. And he teaches them through Moses how they are to govern themselves, how they will deal with um, um, quarrels and disputes, how they will uh, lay out their property lines, how they would deal with medical conditions and health and, 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 and uh, just all of this stuff, science and, and, and everything is in there. God helps the Israelites through Moses set up a nation. Like, for instance, the original welfare program was done back then. God said, when you, when you um, um, uh, glean your crops, when, you, when your crops are ready, you're supposed to leave the corners untouched for those who don't have. And they can come and get the food that they need, wheat and whatever you're growing. We're supposed to, we're supposed to help our fellow man out. Another thing that he did was this, all right? So let's say... This is in uh, Leviticus chapter 25. Let's say I own a piece of property, right? And I fall on hard times and I have to sell that property. And, and, and in the Jewish culture at the time, that was a very embarrassing thing to do. You did not want to have to do this. It means, it means you weren't able to, to, to maintain what you owned. And so you would go and, you would, and you would, they would write out the history of the land and why you lost it and everything else. And then you would have, generally it would be a family member who was called a kinsman redeemer 
And this person would be the one that when you were able to buy your land back, or maybe they had the money and they loaned it to you, they would go, and they would go to the official, and, and, and you would say, all right, this is my kinsman redeemer, and they would put all this in this scroll, and, and the front part would be why you lost your land and everything else, and then the back part would be how you're going to get it back. What, what are the plans? And they would roll it up, tie it, and seal it with melted wax, and put it away, and then when it was time to purchase your land back, your kinsman redeemer would say, I'm here, yeah, I'm here for Chip Richardson because he lost his land. He was really, really dumb, but I'm going to buy it back. And then they'll open the scroll and they'll say, yep, that's right. Oh, he really did. He lost his land. But you had a kinsman redeemer. So, so what I'm saying is that God sets up his standards and his way of life and the government and everything else here on this earth the same way he's doing it for eternity. And we also get this in Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah is a prophet, and, he's, and, he's, and he's, he's, he speaks for God to the Israelites, and basically his message is, you know, you guys are going to go into captivity because you're not doing things the way God wants you to do, and, and you're going to be overtaken, and you're 70 years in captivity in Babylon, and they didn't like Jeremiah's message. They were throwing him in prison. They, they put him in this hole. They did all kinds of things. I have a lot of respect for what Jeremiah went through to be a prophet for God. But while he was in prison... He calls, uh, I think his cousin, I think, and he says, hey, man, I want to buy this, this field. And you're going to be my kinsman redeemer. And what this field is, it's, it's prophetic, saying, in essence, listen, Israel is about to be taken captive. It made no sense for him to buy a field at this point in time. But I'm going to buy this field because God says that we will be back in our land, purchasing land, purchasing fields, thriving and growing again as a nation because there will be a redeemer we will be redeemed god will redeem us from our captivity so that's where we get this from all right and that's why the theme for for chapter five is redemption so this scroll is that your kinsman redeemer You know what? Can I just say something? I'll never forget, Pastor Dave, when Mark was doing the funeral for your, for your dad and his phone rang. And at the time, you know, I was like, really? And then Mark said, that better be you, Henry. <laughs> that always, that always, that always. Anyways, so this scroll, it also contains the history of the universe and the events that must take place for it all to be redeemed and put back into the hands of its rightful owner, God the Father, the creator of all things. This scroll has so much information. Like, listen to, uh, let's see, First Peter. First Peter, chapter 1, verse 10. Actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to start in verse 8. So, so basically, I, I think Peter, what we're about to read here, supports the fact that God the Father already had the plan of redemption in place as he spoke through his Old Testament prophets. Now listen to this. This is fascinating. First, we're going to start in verse 8. I have on the screen uh, 10 through 12. He's talking about Jesus. You love him even though you have never seen him. We've never seen Jesus, right? He's, so Peter is writing to the churches in the Asia Minor area, which is Ephesus, Philadelphia, Thyatira, all these churches that Paul established. But he's, this is for us too. 
You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him. And you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. Now, check this out. This salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterward. They were told that their messages were not for themselves, but for you, for us. And now, this is good, and now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. So the Old Testament prophets, they often prophesied a twofold message, prophecy. And a lot of what they, they prophesied, what we'll read one from Isaiah here in a little bit, they didn't know what they were saying. Like even David, King David, wrote a psalm in Psalm 22, and in that psalm, it's about Jesus being crucified. I don't think he knew exactly what he was writing down, because it didn't make sense. Unless you know the story of Jesus on the cross, Psalm 22 doesn't make sense. And so that's kind of what Peter is saying here. Listen, this story has been told for thousands of years, but those who were chosen by God to tell the story, they didn't really know what they were telling. They were just being obedient to God's Holy Spirit. And so, so this is what makes me believe that this scroll contains the land deed to paradise, what Adam and Eve forfeited, right? As well as the history of all things past, all things present, and all things future when it comes to God's creation and his redemptive plan for mankind. And then we pick it up in verse 5. As John is weeping because no one is, is worthy to open this scroll, one of the elders say to him, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. John looked up. He didn't see a lion. He saw a lamb. In verse 6, Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. But it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the world. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. So Jesus is often referred to as both a lion and a lamb. He is a lion who is a descendant from the tribe of Judah. That's his family line. And we get this from Genesis chapter 49. That is his second coming. After the tribulation period and the marriage supper of the lamb, when we're up there taking place with this great, great banquet with him, we will ride on horses back with Jesus as he comes down to the earth to set up his kingdom and to rule and reign. That's the lion, the conquering king, the lion of Judah. But right now, he is the Lamb of God, the suffering servant. So John sees a lamb that looks as though it's been slaughtered, stepping forward, and he grabs this scroll. Now this is Jesus, the Lamb of God, 
who willingly submitted to the Father and gave himself as a ransom for us all. Listen to what Isaiah said in chapter 53. And I don't think he knew exactly what he was saying, but he was obedient to what God's Holy Spirit wanted him to say. He was oppressed. He's speaking of the Messiah, this Savior. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. This is speaking of Jesus going to the cross. And yet this lamb right now has seven horns, seven eyes, and the sevenfold spirit of God. I mean, literally, I believe that is what he looks like. That's what John saw. That's what John wrote down. Now, the seven horns indicate that all power belongs to Jesus, the Lamb of God. The theological term for this would be omnipotent. He's, he's all power over everything. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 28, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. That's what these seven horns represent. The seven eyes indicate that all divine wisdom and discernment belong to to Jesus. The theological term for this, and I might mess it up, is om omniscience. That's what that means. He, he knows everything. Now, I want to quote a passage from the Gospel of John, chapter 3. This is John the Baptist speaking of his cousin Jesus to all who can hear him. And, and, and I've got it up here. I've got the parts highlighted that I'm going to read, but you can read the whole passage. This is what he says about Jesus. He has come from above and is greater than anyone else. He testifies about what he has seen and heard, for he is sent by God. He speaks God's words, for God gives him the spirit without limit. The sevenfold spirit of God represents the Holy Spirit and in, in all his divine attributes. What is, what is the sevenfold spirit? Isaiah says it in Isaiah chapter 11. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. This is Jesus. Again, does Isaiah really know what he's, what he's, he's talking about, a Messiah? But this is future stuff. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, the sevenfold Spirit of God. And the fear of the Lord means to be in awe of, to revere him, to hold him up to the highest of esteems, not to cower in fear of him. And then verse 7 says, he stepped forward and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. Now this scene is the greatest transfer of power the world will ever know. In one of the books I was reading, it, reading it used the word seismic. This, this, this was a seismic event as the lamb took the scroll from the one who sits on the throne. And then I'm like, well, I don't really use the word seismic in my conversation, so let me, let me look this up and find my thesaurus and find another word that would fit me. There isn't one. There is no other words in the thesaurus for the word seismic. This is, this is like groundbreaking, the, the, the biggest transfer of power we'll ever know. God the Father hands over the scroll that contains the history and future events of the world to our Redeemer, the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, Christ Jesus. And in chapters 6 through 8, we will see the Lamb breaking open these scrolls. So we'll get to see what's in here. 
But that will have to wait next week and a few weeks to come. But look what happens when the transfer of power goes from God the Father to God the Son. We'll pick it up in verse 8. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense. Each one of them had an instrument. And they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. We'll look at this in a minute. And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God and they will reign on the earth. So the scene suddenly changes from weeping to worship. As those closest to the throne sing a new song. In chapter 4, they were singing, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who still come, who, who is still to come. Now they're singing a new song as the transfer of power has been given to the Lamb. Now, verse 8 is something that I often meditate on, and you'll often hear me kind of use. Um, these, these gold bowls filled with our prayers as if they are incense. King David in Psalm 141, he referred to our prayers as incense. He said to God, accept my prayer as incense offered to you and my upraised hands as an evening offering. Our prayers are a sweet aroma to God. When we pray to God, when we have a need, when we are crying our hearts out to God, when we are conversing to God, when we are petitioning him for something, when we don't know what else to say and we use our heavenly prayer language, they are going up to the throne room of God and they are filled in bowls as sweet aroma, as incense to God. And I believe at just the right time when those prayers are answered, he pours them back out into our lives as we've been begging and pleading and speaking and talking and asking and wondering when our prayers will be answered and trusting that God knows best at just the right, at Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, at just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessings, so do not give up on doing what is good. At just the right time, God will pour those prayers back out into your life just the right time. And if you're not seeing the answer, continue to pray, continue to petition, continue to speak to him, continue to knock, seek, and ask. Because your prayers are in the throne room of God in bowls. <laughs> and so as this transfer of power took place, the throne room of God erupted as they sing a new song. And then millions of angels join in in a mighty chorus. Then I looked again and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. And they sang in a mighty chorus, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So John's in the throne room and then he hears something else, more singing, and he looks as far as the eye could see, angels singing this song to their creator. 
This is an incredible scene, church. There is no one who compares to Jesus. And he is the only one with an unlimited amount of power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. This is our king right here. <clears throat> but there's more. <clears throat> and then I heard, okay, good, three. Hold that thought. I felt like, uh, was it the ShamWow guy? But wait, there's more. <clears throat> and then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and they sang, blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped the Lamb. Amen. Amen. That is the redemption of all creation. This is what the praise of all creation giving its creator looks and sounds like. Notice, it is every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, everything that can breathe is singing to its creator. <clears throat> every fish, everything. Under the earth, what does that mean? Well, there is a waiting place for those who rejected Jesus here on this earth. When we die, as Christians, I believe we meet our maker. We stand face to face with Jesus, and we, we receive what is called the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ, meaning, meaning our lives as Christians, as believers, we are given an account for. And we'll receive rewards for that. Some of us, it says that we'll escape as wood, hay, and stubble, just barely making it through. It doesn't matter. <laughs> we don't care. We're in heaven. But those who rejected Jesus here on this earth are in a place because they have what's called, it's called the great white throne judgment, and it comes later on. And they, too, will face their creator. And their lives, their very lives, will give an account. And because of their rejection of God, they will spend eternity separated from him. Now, many years ago, there was a teaching by a guy named Rob Bell who wrote this book that basically said there is no hell. Like, God has enough grace, he'll call us out of hell. Well, there's nowhere in the scriptures that support that. And I believe that's a very dangerous path to travel down because you're telling people, hey, it's going to be fine. You'll, you'll just, you know, it's not going to be fine. It's not. See, this lake of fire and all this stuff that is reserved for Satan and his demons and everything else, all that comes, we'll, we'll read about that later on. But for those who reject Jesus, here's what I believe. I believe that the window of Hades or hell or wherever they're at is kind of opened. The, the window, the roof, the ceiling, whatever it is, right? Just enough for them to see, oh, it really was true. It really was true. And every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. 
The Apostle Paul wrote the same thing to the church in Philippians, chapter 2. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. Jesus will be hailed as the King of Kings by every living, breathing creature that ever walked this earth. All creation sings blessings and honor and praise to God the Father and God the Son. Nothing is hidden from giving honor and praise to the one who deserves it most. Now, to wrap this whole thing up today, Revelation chapters 4 and 5 are incredible scenes as to what takes place in heaven as the transfer of power from God the Father to God the Son takes place. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who redeems mankind from what Satan had stole with a lie. Deception. This is why, this is why pride is, such, is one of the worst. Like, God, you read the scriptures. He does not like pride because that's what crept into Satan's heart. Lucifer, as the chief musician in heaven, was pride. And pride is what has, has gave him the, the title of the father of lies. Even, and here's the thing too, church, I want you to know this, because even the events to come as we continue in this series may seem a little unsettling. We must keep in mind that this is a book of hope. The book of Revelation is a book of hope. All the Old Testament prophecies point to what is to come, to the book of Revelation, to the end times. And, and, and this is the history and the future of God's creation. And we get to play a part in it. As we point others to Jesus and share the good news of his salvation, of his redemptive plan for mankind. If anything, it should give us a sense of urgency to share Jesus with those around us. Because we know, we know what the story, we know how it ends. And we get to play a part in it. I'll end it with this, Isaiah 52, verse 7. This is, this is speaking of us, church, because those of us who call ourselves Christians are the ones who point people to Jesus. We don't change them, we don't call them out, we don't judge them, we point them to Jesus and let the Holy Spirit do what he does best. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news. The good news of peace and salvation. The news that the God of Israel reigns. Amen? Let's pray. Well, Jesus, I, I thank you so much for who you are. And I thank you, Lord God, that, that you give us this book, your word, that shows us and tells us in great detail the events, past, present, and future of your kingdom. 